Hello, my name is Daklan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. I'm excited to welcome Ben Andak to the show today. Ben is a, a writer, a designer, a developer, a, a business developer, a producer. He's, he's a man who is who is many hats. Um, he, he it's kind of like I really like speaking to people like Ben because not only is he a, a brilliant, fascinating guest with like tons of really good stories, but um, he's one of those people in video games that kind of I think most people who enjoy them don't necessarily know exists. You know that that kind of behind the scenes kind of producer uh, quality assurance A&R type person uh, so it was fascinating to hear from Ben like he spent many years working at Sega and he also worked at Sony he was the producer of, of No Man's Sky he's kind of helped foster new talent and, and kind of make their their games on their platforms as good as they they possibly can be he's also just recently gone gone freelance so this episode is nothing but dirt on Sega and Sony um, of, of course that isn't the case uh, in fact there might be a, a few points where we kind of hint at things that we can't really talk about and I know how frustrating that is but there is a there is very good reason for for a lot of that uh, and it you know it's still an amazing and fascinating conversation uh, there's also like there's an extra little bit to his bio that I want to add on which I didn't know going into the chat when he he kind of he tells me about it right at the end of the episode and I found it a really quite delightful little surprise so i'm not going to spoil it here so listen to the end but it's just like an extra little little soup song to his uh his video game cv um yeah brilliant chat really thoroughly enjoyed it i'm sure you're going to enjoy it too uh, if you do enjoy it please do rate and review it on itunes all that good stuff um all that good stuff what does that mean i just mean rate and review on itunes because i you know i want to try and reach as wide an audience as possible and coming to episode 100 which i'm very excited about it's a real milestone for the show so the more people are able to kind of spread the word about it share it on social media rate and view on itunes whatever app you use like i use overcast and um, i'm delighted that you know every week the show is one of the most kind of recommended games and hobbies podcasts so so keep doing all of that and do it if you haven't already um i mean i don't mean to be forceful but if you do enjoy the show, it would be massively appreciated. And I, I'm not a particularly forceful person. Um, like, even if I, I... I say that because even if I was trying to be forceful, if you knew me, you'd be like, ah, keep on trying. <laughs> um, if you really enjoy the show, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Any donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Uh, I'm thinking of like adding a few bits to that for the episode 100. Um, like, I mean, I don't, it, it's not, I, I make enough now to cover my hosting costs, which is all I really wanted it for. Um, but if I'm able to make more on top of that, that'd be great. If there's certain things that people are interested in uh, that they'd like to get, I don't know, badges and stickers. I don't know how much these things cost and I don't really have time. But if people really want them, then I'd be happy to provide them. Um, okay, I think, is that it? That's pretty much it. Uh, I'll be back next week as I oh, no 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 wait wait I forgot to do the the contact thing so <laughs> if you want to get in touch with the show 
that you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at Checkpoint Show on Twitter or it's Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. I'll be back next week, as always, with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Well, let's not let's not burn through this quality content. Let's let's officially start um, the episode. So, uh, Ben. <laughs> welcome to the show thanks so much for coming on uh, if you don't mind would you introduce yourself hi uh yeah so i'm i'm ben andak um i am a business and product developer uh which sounds pretty dry uh but i i've worked in the industry for i guess almost 15 years now um or just over that and uh i've worked as a designer uh and as in production, as a producer, and in business development. Uh, so I've worked at uh, quite a few companies in those roles across the years. Um, yeah, that's it. That's that's the short version of what I do. And so, what what are you doing? What is your role now? Are you could like a freelance producer kind of thing. Kind of. Uh, so I do more kind of business development now um, and consultancy. So I, I essentially I help studios. Uh, figure out what they're looking for and and what kind of direction they want to go in in terms of the overall kind of direction of the studio, but also their their projects. And I help them, or I help steer them, I suppose, uh, in that direction and help them get the kind of investment that they need. So whether that's with pitching for a project or investment for their studio, um, or just general advice on who they should be talking to and what they should be doing. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's uh, by and large what I do. Uh, I also do some, some kind of design consultancy uh, for some studios. So away from the kind of business consultancy stuff. I suppose the um, business stuff is the, is the part of it that most people don't necessarily think of, you know, it's only when they're like, right. So how do we, how do we make this now? Where do we get money from and stuff? It's, it's something that only comes yeah. with experience basically. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's. Uh, so I've been giving a couple of talks actually uh, the past few months um, since I left Sony. Uh, I, I was at Nordic and uh, a few other game shows, uh, giving talks to developers, particularly younger developers, who who don't think about that stuff and, and who who approach it understandably. You know, they just think about purely about the game they're kind of laser focused on on the the thing that they're making the thing that they're passionate about and it's uh it's kind of like field of dreams right if you build it they will come absolutely yeah is that is the philosophy that a lot of people have and uh unfortunately it's it's the wrong philosophy to have in games particularly if you want to get investment um and, and and you want support or you want to work with a partner um to get your game done you need to think outside of the game, you know, and, and, and as this kind of isolated uh, thing that's just sitting there, you know, in a vacuum, and you need to think about, you know, what kind of value your game has um, and your studio has or pa- a partnership with you has from someone else's point of view uh, and approach it in that way. So a, a lot of what I do is try to help people understand, you know, how to think about how to empathize and how to do the right kind of research and how to know and make uh, be confident and have that kind of clarity of vision when they're going in to talk to someone um, of how they can talk about their game outside of that bubble that you enter when you're making a game. 
Yeah, it's weird. I, like, I feel like that's probably true for almost all kind of uh, creative endeavors. You know, it's, it's this assumption that you just you work on the craft and then you make something amazing and then all the other stuff kind of fits into place afterwards. You know, you never really think, oh, there's a, a specific route I can go down here and I can pitch it to, you know, you, you never, I, well, maybe I'm projecting, but, you know, it's rare right. that people do do that because I like I'm, I'm a writer. So I've, I spent years like writing scripts and, and thinking, right, oh, I'll put it into a competition. Maybe I'll win. And I did a couple of years ago, I did a master's degree in, in TV writing and kind of, completely switched my perspective around to like oh no you need to you need to know who you need to research you need to know who you're pitching to and where they find value and how you can put yourself in that position and stuff and it's a real tricky not tricky but it's kind of it's almost counterintuitive to what like you assume is the path you you or you don't really assume there's a path at all you just think oh, i'll get lucky if i keep making stuff Right. And, um, you know, there, there is a sliver of truth to that, you know, in, in the sense of ultimately, you know, when it, when it comes to working with other people and, um, it, you know, or getting development support or, or any kind of support when you're partnering with someone, there is an element of luck to it. Um, and there is an element of timing to it. You know, it's it's like everything else in the world. You know, you've just got to be at the right place at the right time to a certain extent, no matter how good your thing is, but also no matter how well you've researched um, and prepared yeah. yourself and, and thought about, you, you know, how your thing could help someone else. Um, there's still an element of luck there. Um, so what I mean, what I talk about is just preparing yourself in the best way so that when that alignment uh comes then then you're in the right you're you know you're saying the right things absolutely and, yeah. think, and thinking in the right way to take advantage of it but but by no means is anything ever guaranteed there is there is that element of just timing and luck to it and it's much you know i think this is the thing that's surprising to me in terms of you know talking about this stuff and, and helping people with this insight is it's just simply we all know that it's a, a kind of risky endeavor and that there's an element of luck, particularly to success. You know, everyone knows that great games don't automatically equal great successes yeah. um, financially. So we all know that. We've seen that. We can point to so many examples of that. So, um, it, you know, it's a surprise that people don't then take that leap uh, and think about it from that, that perspective of, you know, invest, uh, pitching for investment. Um, and, and trying to get the game made that, you know, it isn't just about the game being great or good, yeah, yeah. Um, that there's there's more to it beyond that. Is that awful uh, element of subjectivity that, that is the yeah. trickiest thing to navigate? Um, well, let's let's meander back uh, then, Ben. So if you can, if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Uh, <laughs> um, so... I think I I was about five five years old something like that. It was uh, my first experience was I was round a friend's house and I played a game. I can't remember what game because my memory of it is so vague. But I played a, a NES game um, around my friend's house and I, I I remember enjoying it. But I also I didn't kind of go back and say. I really want to play games to my parents or, or, or want a console. Um, you know, I, I came from a, a, a pretty 
working class background and uh, a games console at that time was not really a luxury I could afford uh, or even ask for. Um, Whereabouts in the country is this? This was in London. I grew up in East London, uh, which I'm not sure if my accent gives away or not. Um, But I, I, yeah, I grew up in Walthamstow in East London and um, it, it, it was it was not a difficult childhood, but it was it, you know we didn't have all of the kind of luxuries in life. I actually spent most of my time growing up reading books. Okay. Um, okay. More than anything else, I was an only child, and I uh, I am an only child, but I, I just read a lot, kind of almost to the point where I got in trouble at school because um, I would stay up all night reading. You know, once I started reading, I can stop. So after lights out, I would kind of just get a torch. Anything and, uh, in particular or just anything? Any, anything or absolutely anything that I could get my hands on, um, I would read, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I, I mean, I really did enjoy fiction more so, but I would honestly, I would just read anything. And uh, <laughs> actually, so the first console I did own, this was a, a, a couple of years later, uh, was a Master System. And uh, my mum got me that to try to stop me from reading so much. Um, <laughs> so she, <laughs> I actually got in trouble at school because I was falling asleep at school um, from, from staying up and reading all night. Uh, and, the t- you know, she was called in and, and was not pleased. <laughs> uh, and I, I got in a lot of trouble. But then, Surely you, know, you can't actually get in trouble for reading too much. I mean, they, they, they must have appreciated the value in that. No, no, <laughs> not really. I mean, I... Maybe, but if they did, they didn't uh, express that to me. Okay. So I, I, essentially, as a form of distraction, my mum ended up buying me a master system, um, because by that point, I, you know, I'd, I'd played the NES at my friend's house, and I, I played a few times after that whenever I was around. Um, but I also, with my mum, I would go to our local shopping centre like every weekend, and there would be a section that just had arcade cabinets. Um, and that, those were my first really vivid memories of, of playing console games, like some, some really old arcade games. And, uh, and they were all, a lot of those were Sega titles. So things like, um, Shinobi, um, it was, it was really, I really enjoyed that time. You know, that was my favorite part of the weekend. Um, so yeah, when it came to the point where my mom was like, well, you know, we can get you something and, you know, as long as you promise, you know, you've got to be reasonable and go to sleep and not read all night. Um, we can get you a games machine. And, uh, so I, I was like, Oh, well, I'd love a master system. Cause Sega was kind of what I was used to seeing yeah. that name. Uh, and, and so that was the, that was the console I got. And I kind of never looked back after that. I was a, I became a huge Sega fan. Um, and I never owned a Nintendo console, you know. So during those old, those kind of playground things, I was I was firmly on the uh, Sega side. My first Nintendo console was a GameCube, I think. Um, so did I the, but did the Master System work then? Did that did that wean you off of, of reading? It did. It did. So and to this day, I kind of I, <laughs> it's, it's one out in that in that struggle. Um, so I definitely play more than I read now, but at the time as well, I definitely did start playing more and, and stopped, you know, staying up all night and reading. Um, 
it, it was weird that it was weird that it didn't replace it by staying up all night and playing games. But I, I, I don't know why. I think. Well, actually, no, I do know why. It was because I didn't have the TV in my room. Ah, okay. Um, so I was just kind of playing uh, in a living room uh, for small kind of periods of time. Uh, you know, my parents never watched TV, so the only time the TV was uh, was off limits was when if my dad was watching football or something like that. So what were the standout mass system games, if there were any? I yeah, there were. Um, so I got Shinobi on the Master System as well because it was the one that I kind of knew, um, and I got Fantasy Star. I remember playing lots and lots of Fantasy Star. Uh, that was it. It was a fortune. It was just a a lucky kind of thing to have that. Um, I I didn't know anything about it when I got it, but then it was a game that just kept on giving. So I had that. I remember playing that for years. Um, quite literally. Um, Wonder Boy. Do you remember Wonder Boy? Of course, yeah. Which one? Wonder Boy 3. Yeah. So I, I played that a lot as well. Which Wonder Boy, though? Wonder Boy 3. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I just actually, Omar, who made the, the remake, was just on the show a couple of episodes ago. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, I, I, when I, when he showed me that, uh, when Omar showed me that a few years ago, when he first started working on it, I, uh, <laughs> It, lots of memories were kind of flooding back. It was great to see the tech that he built. Oh, it's amazing because uh, that was experience. like for me, like my first console was a Master System as well, and Wonder Boy Three was such a an iconic game. But it's one of those yeah. games where it was like it consumed my life for a big chunk of when I was like a ten or something, and then yeah. but nothing. It's kind of one of those kind of forgotten characters. So then when Omar sort of did the remake, I was like, oh my god, just the the hits of nostalgia was so intense. Because it's not like Mario or Sonic that have kind of always been in the culture kind of thing. It was like, oh my god, just yeah. the music and the sound of the doors opening and closing and stuff. It was just, it was, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, so did you? Were you kind of all in to games at that point? Like from then on, like did you start getting the magazines and building friendship groups around games and stuff? Yeah, I did. Um, so you know, obviously, I kind of graduated onto Mega Drive. Some, a few years after that and um and was fully invested by that point i mean that was really you know sonic and aladdin and flashback um you know virtual racing uh, the first kind of 3d game on mega drive was kind of that was amazing that was i played that so much. i love that and i remember showing it to my parents and them being impressed did that actually uh, come out on the mega drive or was that like a, a 32x thing no, it came out on the Mega Drive before the 32X, I think. Oh, amazing. Um, right at the end. I could, maybe I'm missing it, but I'm pretty sure it did. Um, yeah, it was. that was really, for me, the kind of awakening and golden age. Um, so, you know, I played a few games on the Master System, but I didn't, you know, again, I didn't have a lot. Uh, and it was a, a luxury that I could afford to have loads of games all the time. And no one that I knew at primary school really played that many games um at least there weren't people that I, I spoke to about it um so it wasn't until the mega drive era and the kind of early 90s and, and secondary school that it started to become you know a real uh, a hobby i suppose and uh, and something that i as you say you know had social connections i think like of. part of that it's weird because this doesn't come up on the show uh, as much you're kind of 
early video game history is, is much more similar to mine because often people have home computers and so therefore yeah. there is piracy so suddenly you have this huge kind of range of games play whereas consoles you didn't have that so for me it was all about swapping games like that was how i because i couldn't afford to get more than like one or two games a year like birthday and christmas maybe so it would be you would seek out other people in school that had the same console as you so you could do swaps like that was how i played as many games as i did absolutely yeah i mean in terms of actual game purchases at that age i think i probably there was probably like one game a year or two maybe two if i was lucky um for many years so as you say it was all about either going around to other people's houses borrowing games i used to go to my cousin's house and play all the ea sports games okay uh, so whether that was madden or nhl or or um uh sensible soccer or whatever it was it was just you know those were those were things that i would play at their houses or, or borrow from them as you said um so it was very different i did i did have an amiga at one point as well um but for a really short period i can't remember why we got rid of it but in that in that short period i remember playing uh another world and james pond for some those are my two memories of 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 the Amiga and, and the games that I played on them. Uh, but, but great memories. It's amazing. This is a, a total aside, but um, I saw someone doing a, a tweeted a thing the other day about how the, the main character in another world looks exactly like Ed Sheeran. <laughs> it's really, it's really <laughs> quite jarring because he really does. I'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Eric Charlie knows Ed Sheeran. I'll mention, I'll mention it next time. We'll see <laughs> so, so how did, did it ever kind of abate this kind of love of games? Was there ever a period where you kind of moved away from it for a bit or was it all, you were just kind of all in? I was all in. Yeah. I never really moved away from it. I, I moved into kind of different aspects of it. Um, so obviously I, I, I really grew into playing kind of competitive games like local co-op with my friends, um, whether that was, you know, Pro Evo or, or um, GoldenEye around my friend's house. Um, and obviously kind of graduating onto the, uh, uh, the other console. So I got a, a Saturn and then a Dreamcast. Um, I did move into fighting games a lot. So I, I started really playing fighting games seriously, um, not just at home, but also going to local kind of get-togethers and tournaments. Um I, I really got into Virtual Fighter, like in a in a in a big way. How old were um, you when you would have got into that? Uh, let me think. I was probably about seventeen, sixteen or seventeen. Yeah, because um, that was one of the, the Saturn launches, right? That was the big Saturn yeah, game. Was Virtual yeah, Fighter? It was, it was when Virtual Fighter came out on Saturn. Because I think I think Virtual Fighter was originally meant to be a Meg Drive game, um, but, but then they kind of pushed it back to to Saturn. Um, uh, and the kind of chipset they had with, with the Sega Saturn. So it was, yeah, it was, I think it was around 1996. Um, yeah, that, and that's when I really got into to playing fighting games in a big way. Um, and, it, and it just kind of went on from there, you know, with all the, with the entire VF series, but also with Street Fighter. Obviously, I played Street Fighter when I was younger, but uh, including the original Street Fighter, that shopping center that I went to with my mum. So one of the arcade cabinets they had there was the original Street Fighter. Did it have the uh, the force feedback buttons? Yeah, yeah. It was really, it was intriguing. 
um, but, but completely different than what that series uh, yeah. developed into. Um, so would there have been? Yeah. Would you still have had access to like being in London? I'm assuming there would have still been a few arcades. Like the truck was still kind of yeah, pretty good yeah. through most of the uh, 90s. Yeah, Trocadero, Casino, um, a lot of the kind of arcade places which are now gone um, in London were there at the time. And I did go to those like later on, kind of in the VF2 and VF3 era. Um, but actually a lot of the kind of arcade time, aside from playing at home, um, was spent in kind of local shopping malls and, and newsagents. Um, that's where you would find... You know, arcade cabinets, weirdly, here. That, I think that's where a lot of people... News agents, that's a weird one. For me, it was taxi ranks and kebab shops. That was where they were oh, really? arcades, yeah. That was where I'd yeah, go and play Street Fighter and stuff. It was at least the part of London that I was in. It was always news agents that had them. So news agents had Street Fighter, Five, uh, Street Fighter 2, um, like Championship Edition, and stuff like that. You know, that's where there was one news agent, uh, which was near my secondary school, uh, and every lunch it would be a, a race. There would be a, a stamp, like a, a run to see who could get there first, um, which would always kind of be redundant because if you got there before the fifth warmers, they would just kind of barge you <laughs> up. Um, so, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's my memory of it. I'm sure there were probably some in kebab shops around here as well, but uh, my memory of it was always news agents. And so I'm assuming you would have been quite good then if you were if you got into the sort of competitive scene or the competitive aspect of it uh yeah i mean i, I i'm okay <laughs> it's a, it's a weird thing particularly after evo has just happened this weekend and, and seeing the matches there kind of describing yourself as being good at a fighting game seems inappropriate uh i i i was okay yeah i i, I could get by i understood the fundamentals of it and uh and particularly with Virtual Fighter, I, I got into it quite deeply to a level that I couldn't comfortably say I was very good, um, less so with other fighting games. Um, and why do you think that, would, that that is? Because like a lot of time, I think, like I, I mentioned my friend uh, Leo Tan, who was on the very yeah. first episode of the show, in fact, and, and him and a, a group of my friends all really got into Virtual Fighter, like serious always play in virtual fighter and i i never did and i think part of that is because i didn't live in london so there, there wasn't that kind of live aspect of it so do you think that's i'm assuming you would have kind of built your kind of crew of you know uh, friends and uh, and enemies in the virtual fighter community i think so i think so I, I you know obviously you can you know you can be into fighting games and you can become incredibly good at them uh playing at home um but really before online uh, and before that allowed people to you know play with other live players uh, and, and build up that experience which is key um the only way would be to do it in person uh, and and, the, and you would have such a you know you wouldn't have luxury as with online where you could just sit there and if you lose it's all right you know you just play the next game yeah um you know when when you play on an arcade cabinet uh it's just as, as long as you can it's you know as long as you can survive and it's whatever that one credit gets you um so how would that have looked though like was it was it scheduled or would you just turn up at an arcade and you'd see the similar sort of faces turn up and you just all fight yeah, together? yeah i or? mean 
when it was when in terms of going to the actual arcade you'd go there you'd see the same people always there they'd be on there'd be a small gang around if you sometimes it'd be quiet and you'd be the only one there uh, maybe one other guy would kind of come if, if it was a kind of quiet period for whatever reason and uh and you guys would just run a long set against each other and just keep playing um and, and figuring stuff out uh but when there was a big crowd you know you would just wait your turn you know you put your you put your coins on sometimes you couldn't even get that far you know some people would just be w- would have kind of reserved their slot uh and would have all their their coins there or, or would tell you in no uncertain terms that you were not getting on the cabinet <laughs> um so it was it you know it's there's a very different kind of culture and group around fighting games it's, uh, you know, some of it is good and some of it is bad. Um, overall, the kind of community and, the, and the, the feeling and the understanding that people have, the kind of unspoken understanding of, of, uh, uh, of that scene and, and of the rights and wrongs of that scene, the rules of that scene are, are, are generally respected. And, um, you know, it's a really tight-knit community. Uh, it's a really great community. I, I, you know, it really brings people together in a way that I think other kind of competitive gaming communities are, um, you know, whether that's a, a MOBA or, you know, a, a kind of uh, a first person shooter or whatever, whatever the kind of genre, I don't really think you have the kind of the, the connection that you do as you do with fighting games. Cause it is one-on-one and it is so much of a, a psychological battle as much as it is a, a technical one of, of really kind of understanding who you're playing um particularly with virtual fighter uh, so how far yeah. did you did you take it like how did you ever sort of get into tournaments and you know think yeah about I doing professional it, stuff yeah i played in local tournaments i mean i never uh, when i played seriously i played before the fighting game community, you know, started to have sponsors, player sponsorships and that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and were technically professionals. Um, I played in local tournaments, um, and national tournaments. So there would be a, a big tournament in, in the UK. Um, and in London, particularly where everyone would kind of come down and play. And I think I'm trying to remember where I ranked when I was playing that. I think I came, the best I ever placed was 11th in the UK, which is not great. <laughs> um, it's pretty good. But it's okay. It would, I mean, out of uh, probably around like 100 players that play seriously. So it was, it was, it was okay. <laughs> so, so what were you, like, you know, it, there wasn't kind of the, the avenue to be like, okay, I can go and fight in the Evo tournaments and be a professional and stuff. So, so, at what point did you start thinking about like I could work in games in some capacity? Like where did that idea come from? Um, so that came, so I actually, I, I didn't intend to get into games at all and I never trained or studied, uh, for that. So I, I, I studied literature and, uh, and English, uh, and I, and I liked writing a lot. Um, so I, I, when I left university, uh, I became a writer and, um, and did some, did, well, I worked for a film magazine for a year. I worked for Sight of Sound and then I started to freelance and I was, 
I was doing reviews, but then I was also kind of editing copy. And I started to work on my own stuff as well and, and working on uh, scripts uh, and, and dialogue, and some of it for, for game studios. So I did have some involvement in the games industry, but, but as a real kind of, uh, you know, secondary um, aspects of my working life. Why would um, you, just, why go to like Sight and Sound and stuff if you had this interest in games? Did you never think, oh, I'll go and see if I can get some no, edge I, or something? I don't know why. I, I never did. I really, I mean, we've not spoken about it, but I also really love film. And, uh, you know, in a, as much as I love games, to be honest, um, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to pick one over the other. It's, I, I genuinely love film. I love watching film. I love thinking about film. And uh, in the same way that I love playing games and thinking about games. Uh, and I was interested in writing about film and writing for film uh, for a long time and, uh, and have continued that. So I, I don't know why. It just kind of – my, my career kind of – sorry, my, my education kind of took me that way for some reason. And it just seemed to be the one that I could enter uh, – easiest uh for one for one of a better yeah because like i i did a, a literature degree as well and you know they they were modules on film you know that that was part yeah. of it i, I did I just just this just occurred to me now like i wonder if they do that with games now i wonder if the games have kind of got their way into an english literature degree anywhere in the world i'm sure they must have yeah i wonder actually it's a good question obviously there's lots of games courses but i don't know about uh English courses. There's, you know, the, actually, I studied. My course name was English Literature and Cultural Studies. Um, so you would hope that on the on the Cultural Studies part of that kind of course, there would be a module on on games. We um, have extraordinarily similar uh, roots, Ben, because my I did English and pop culture uh, right. at the university. It was a very similar thing, and weirdly, like I. I specifically wanted to write about games because there was nothing in games across all of it and it blew my mind i remember i yeah. did i did uh, an ethnographic study into the dance dance revolution community and my <laughs> uh, my lecturer was just thrilled about this he's like this is like nobody is doing this anywhere this is amazing uh, yeah but then it died the community kind of died about a year after unfortunately right but yeah, that was in the truck of the year as well and that was amazing that was like proper like like uh breakdance battles you go to the trocadero and watch some ddr yeah. teams play off against each other it was incredible yeah i was i remember those <laughs> i remember those guys when i was playing uh when we we're playing fighting games seeing all the dance songs revolution people it was uh they were they were really competitive actually oh they were yeah. amazing they're like backflips yeah. and like proper showboat and stuff it was amazing yeah um, anyway sorry no <laughs> i um so yeah i it, it, it was a weird path into games so so what happened actually was i at one point you know obviously i, I play games all the time i love games uh, but then i played uh res um and it's something just switched inside of me so i played res and it really blew me away uh it, i kind of i was sweating when i was playing it it was so intense it was so uh visceral and tactile and you know made me appreciate all of the senses that were were being engaged 
in a way that no other game and definitely no other medium had done uh, in terms of the way that they interact with you. Yeah. And, you know, so, so books, you know, require a different type of interaction from their reader um, and films require a different type of interaction from, from their viewers. And, uh, and, and, and there is an interaction there, by the way, it's, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's always a pet peeve of mine when, when game developers say that the fun, the main difference between games and films are that games are interactive and films are not, which is complete bullshit. You know, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> uh, films are totally interactive. They're just interactive in a different way. So, um, I, sorry, I'll just get back to the point. I'll no, just, no, 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 that, that's so interesting. There was a brilliant um, article by, I always bring up Christian Donald because I think he's just a genius writer, but he, he, he wrote about that exact thing um, when he was talking about Virginia um, because that is, there isn't any clear necessary necessarily interaction in, in the playing of that game, but he was comparing it to, you know, the same interaction you get watching a film, you know, it, it kind of, yeah. it's an internal interaction, but nevertheless it, it exists in some fashion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and it's really important to understand that, you know, as we started to create a vocabulary and a grammar for, for games, uh, not just games design, but, you know, game experience and, and the emotions that, that come from it. It's really important to not just respect, but to understand the language of other mediums yeah. to kind of know how we differentiate ourselves and, and what we do differently. Um, and, and that was, you know, my res experience was very much a, an awakening of that personally of, of, wow, you know, I, I've always loved games that I've always enjoyed the experiences for what they are, but I've, this is, acting as a, as a, as a portal and is allowing me to experience something that I otherwise simply wouldn't be able to understand or appreciate or experience, you know? So, so thinking about synesthesia, for example, um, I can read a book about synesthesia, but I can't really empathize. I can't really understand, um, what it must be like to have synesthesia. And similarly to watch a film, I can have an incredible kind of audio visual experience and, and see a light show and a sound and have the kind of sound show element of it. But, but still I can't really understand what it must be like to, um, to have synesthesia to, or some form of synesthesia, but playing res really made me at least appreciate and know what that must feel like, because yeah. I felt like through the game I was experiencing synesthesia and it was, it was a real kind of revelation to me. And I, I remember when I finished it, just thinking to myself, I need to do this. I need, I need to make games. I need to do, I, I need to make more games like this um, and explore this and, and trying to make other games that, that explore different things in a way that, you know, that maybe the topics or the themes have been covered by other things, but, but not in a way that games can offer. So what did and, you do? Uh, how do you, like, where do you go with that kind so of, left, like, inspiration? So I, so I, I just complete. I, I left uh, what I was doing. I stopped uh, working in, in the kind of film writing sector, and I, I contacted someone that I knew uh, from when I was at university. He, uh, he was actually a, a guest lecturer, and, uh, and actually, so this wasn't part of our course, but he was a guest lecturer, and he was talking about uh, the games industry. Um, and I got in touch with him and said, 
can I get a job? He had a, he had a, a like a game company. And I said, you know, would I, would it be possible for me to come and work at work with you guys? Um, and through that, basically I, I learned games development. And I, where, I, where was, was that? Really, who was that? So I can't say who it was, um, but what a tease! It, yeah, but it was it was it was really I was really lucky in that sense. You know, I had a, a good kind of support network, um, but I was kind of introduced to the games scene through this person and 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 helped to kind of build up my understanding of games development and what that actually involved. Like, what you know, what does an artist do? What does a designer do? What does a, a coder do? And uh, and through that job, and through the kind of people I met uh, in that job, and you know, and I, you know, understanding all aspects of games development, not just uh, and production, um, including QA and and kind of uh, having an experience of QA, which I think everyone does at some point, and kind of seeing what that's like and and how important that is. Um, it was it, it was a really a wonderful couple of years where I got to experience all aspects of, of, of game creation and, and, and threw myself into that to understand all of it in order to, to reach the point where I could, you know, say I'm useful and I can actually and help to, to make the game, uh, which is what I did. And I, I joined Sega in the end. I applied for a job at Sega and joined Sega. And, uh, and so it must have been like, considering your background, it must have been such a thrill to end up at, at Sega then. Like, did you seek that out or did you just notice there was an opportunity and you're like, oh, right, got to go work for Sega. That'd be amazing. Yeah, no, I thought that I went after that. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a complete dream <laughs> come true the day that they accepted me. Um, yeah, I, I, I went there and, um, as I said, I was, I was, I was really fortunate to kind of join their creative team and, uh, it was constantly a pleasure. I had to pinch myself every day, you know, realizing some of the, the things, some of the, the games that were being worked on, um, that so I would, what specifically would did you go there for? Like, what was, what was the, the job? Was it for a specific game or was it just a, a no, job at Sega? So I joined, there was a group in Sega called, uh, they were essentially just called their creative team or their R&D team. And uh, it was a, a team, a, a kind of small team that looked at and worked with all of the kind of internal studios in Europe, uh, as well as globally, actually, but primarily in Europe. Um, but this was still in London, though, right? This was still in London. and uh, But then also working with um, other studios in, in Japan, to kind of help them with with their titles, particularly with bringing them over. Um, so that the role was really kind of somewhere in between a like a design consultant and a junior designer. So I was kind of working with uh, a senior designer um, and analysts, and kind of helping uh, as a kind of floating designer, helping the the, the internal studios with their design. Um, and this is post Dreamcast, so I'm sure that it was yeah. there a part of you that were like, kind of, this is we're gonna we're gonna make Sega great again, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely so. Dreamcast had died a couple a few years earlier, and um, it, you know, Sega was was trying to re-engage with the industry and the market in a completely different way uh, as a publisher, and and 
actually was doing okay, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of building that up, but was also trying to internally reorganize and restructure. Um, and, and in Europe at the time, there was a big drive and in America of, of working with new studios and starting up new studios um, and really kind of thinking about the Western market in particular, um, because Sega was still very much led out of Japan at that time. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely a sense of not necessarily making Sega great again in terms of the past uh, or thinking about it in those terms. I just realized I used the Trump. Yeah, no, I, I did it. So I did it first. I apologize. Oh, my God. Uh, it's an infection. We, we should, uh, let's just stop right now and go and go <laughs> um, Yeah, it, it, but it was very much a case of it being a new, a new kind of undiscovered country for Sega and, and helping Sega um, find its footing in, in this new area. And so what sort of stuff did you work on? Are you able to talk about any of the stuff that, that you kind of helped foster into, into being? Yeah, I can talk about some of it. I can't talk about too much of it. But I worked, I worked on um, Sega Rally Revo, um, which is great. I, you know, being a huge Sega Rally fan, and, um, it was lovely working on that. And so, so Sega created a new studio, a racing studio, uh, up in the, in the, in the north, and, um, which was run by Guy Wilday. Um, and it, that, was, that was a really great experience, kind of going up there, spending time with them, um, and working on that game. Uh, I also worked on Crush. I don't know really. Crush. So, yeah, right. So that's that's not an uncommon answer. Um, it was a PSP game. It was. Oh a... wait, I do know this, and you kind of flatten out the levels, and yes, it's kind of so, like a yeah. navigation around like puzzle game almost. Yeah, a kind of you would crush from two D to three D, and uh, it, kind of not too dissimilar to Paper Mario, which kind of, which came out at the same or around the same time. Um, and I really, I'm really fond of that game because that game went through a really difficult uh, development uh, uh, and, and came close to not, to not happening at all uh, on a couple of occasions. So it's one of those games that I'm really happy um, made it out and, and 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 got a really good reception. It didn't, it, you know, it didn't. It wasn't the commercial success that anyone everyone wanted. Um, but but critically, it was really well received, and I think the game actually still stands. It's it's a, a really good puzzle game with a really interesting mechanic that still hasn't really been explored that much. Um, yeah, it's so. weird. Like I feel bad. There's a lot of brilliant PSP games that kind of are a little bit forgotten purely because of the PSP. Like the the fact that it wasn't massively popular, and also like how quickly piracy kind of took over the PSP. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So those are a couple of games I can talk about. Uh, I worked on a few more that I can't talk about, but it was, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time working with Japan uh, and in Japan and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was a really, the whole experience was a really interesting experience. Um, and it led me to Sony actually quite directly. Um, the, the work that I did there kind of helped me, uh, move over to Sony. So I was kind of approached by Sony and, um, and had an opportunity to, um, so I actually, I, I, I'd spoken to Sony before I went to Sega. Yeah. Um, uh, and had actually interviewed there and I didn't, I wasn't successful. Um, I didn't, I didn't get through. Um, 
so uh, this this opportunity arose the second time through someone that I knew, um, and th- there were the you know I love Sega obviously so why would I ever leave I guess but uh, the the reason for that was the team that I was in uh, was was dispersed eventually okay uh, so that kind of small team of of creative uh, development and uh, an R and D was was kind of split into different teams and, and everyone was kind of put into a different team. I actually ended up at Sega doing uh, business development for the So enough. how was like how how was the the jump to Sony? Was it a very different work atmosphere? Was it still a, a similar kind of role that you were doing? So yeah, I worked um, so I initially I did some work in uh, Worldwide Studios uh, as a as a designer there and but then I, I actually moved to third party relations um at playstation and was working as a as a consultant there so i started doing i i kind of built up a reputation as someone that really um could help a project by helping to solve problems um and and give kind of design feedback uh you're like so, a mr wolf basically they're like yeah i've run into problems we'll, we'll call back yeah uh, so I kind of that became my real um, passion, and it was great, you know. Particularly when it came to to thinking about uh, games uh, and the medium on a higher level, and and what you could do, and and what you could push forward. Yeah. In terms of the limits, you know, I I actually really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed, um, you know, acting as a foil and helping people. Uh, who were making who you know who were leading the direction of the game and the development of the game understand that through kind of conversation through spending time with the studio and i and i've actually never really stopped doing that regardless of the role that i've been in um and i've really i've got a lot of satisfaction out of that um so i ended up doing that at sony and that's when i met shahid actually um so he took me to see a developer um and i really got on with those devs i kind of kept in touch with them afterwards and and supported them when they were making their thing uh, making their project and 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 i think shahid never forgot how how that experience went and um and and, and my involvement in it and uh, so you know, jumping forward massively. But years later, he reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to join this new team that I'm in? Um, and, and that was that, like Sony's sort of first push into like getting indies basically with like the minis and the the kind of the, the getting yeah. smaller publishers in, as the smaller developers rather. Yeah, I mean, Shahid was doing that stuff for like a long time, like, like during the PS3 era. Um, but he he was doing it on a really small scale and kind of experimenting and seeing how it worked. And, and as were the kind of executives around him, um, they were just kind of testing him and testing this, this kind of initiative and, and what it meant. And it, it wasn't until, um, you know, PS minis and PS Vita that it really came to, you know, that he'd built up that experience and that knowledge and understanding of what it is that he could do. And it, and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't so much thinking about it as approaching indies or working with indies. That was not really the mentality. The mentality was more, you know, how can we just generally help developers um, working with PlayStation? I think that was very much the approach. And how can we 
you know, provide this this kind of avenue for developers, but also this avenue for Sony, uh, and and really um, kind of throw ourselves on this the machine that is Sony to make things easier for developers. Um, so that was the kind of drive behind it, really, and, and the kind of core ethos of it. I suppose that part of that would be also like the the classic kind of digital distribution thing, because that that allows kind of smaller developers to you know they're not having to produce boxed copies necessarily. So you can kind of foster this kind of like, especially and also just with the general groundswell of people making games because the the tools are becoming more democratized. So you suddenly have lots more stuff to play with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all, you know, you have to, in t- when you're at a hardware platform, you know, you have to consider what this, this landscape looks like uh, with you in it and, and with you without it potentially. Uh, you know, not in it. So it's just, it's it's understanding the way that tools have progressed, understanding the way that studios uh, approach working for themselves and working with hardware platforms. Like all of this is really important. And as you say, it's kind of the 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 playing field is leveled out much more. And you know, anyone that has the vision and the passion um, and a little bit of money can kind of put something together. Um, and, and, you know, opening it up to everyone, I think is a, is a good thing. You know, the, the, if you, if you help more conversations happen, if you help make it easier, uh, you know, if you help progress the kind of business models that exist and the, the kind of the, the, the structure and the framework of these models, um, and the water rises for everyone, you know, for publishers, for developers and for, for hard, you know, for the platform holders. Um, and that was very much, you know, it sounds much more altruistic than it necessarily always was. <laughs> um, but, but, but there was definitely an element of, you know, we're here to help Sony, um, you know, make itself a, a more attractive platform and, and, and therefore to have a benefit for that platform for, for the PS4 or for the PS Vita, or for the PSVR. Yeah. Um, but, you know, above and beyond that, our, our drive was always, let's just make it a better world for everyone. Um, and, and as long as we're not doing anything that that hurts Sony, you know, you can do things that help other people without having a really immediate, tangible, kind of fiscal benefit or short-term benefit for the platform. You know, it can have a, a long-term strategic benefit, which is you know why we would we were called strategic content so yeah that was very much the way we approached it um I'm, I'm conscious we haven't talked about like games that you're playing for a bit so i'm going to take a brief aside to do some right. relatively quick fire questions okay. um so ben if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul what game are you best at <laughs> um I feel like I should say Virtual Fighter, given what we've spoken about. Um, That's fine. Like, whatever, like you know, it, it can be the game that you played in your prime. So, if right. Was... So it would it would either it would either be Virtual Fighter Four. Um, that would probably be my shout. Or the other really close shout would be um, Modern Warfare, the first one, multiplayer. I was I was surprisingly good at that. I think I could have played that competitively. I was I was really really good. Um, and and I you know obviously we've kind of covered this a little bit, but are you a competitive player? Like, do you enjoy the competitive aspect of it? Have you ever been locked in a battle with someone for for years? Uh, I I do. I, 
so in, actually the short uh, oh god i'm fumbling because i can't I, I can't figure out how to express this the answer is actually i don't um i don't enjoy competitive i don't enjoy online competitive playing um that really is something that i avoid if i can uh, but is i that do because you're a frame snob though from the virtual fighter days <laughs> No, no, no. It's not because of the technical issues uh, in terms of frame data. Um, I just don't like playing with people I don't know. So I like being competitive with people I know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, and 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 I, you know, I really enjoy those kind of long-term, kind of casual, kind of ribbing and competitiveness. But I don't enjoy being competitive with people I don't know because that always leads you. It's kind of it's. In one, I suppose from one point of view, it's easier to shake off because you don't know the person. But from the, my reaction to it always is it kind of irritates me more to lose to someone that I don't know uh, online who I will never know. You know, if, if it's someone that I just met, uh, I, I can get to know them. So, I, you know, I, and I can get to kind of have that, um, have those battles with them. But if it's online, it's it's... I just don't get as much satisfaction from it and it just kind of irritates me. I wonder, I do wonder like if, if online multiplayer would be different if there were some kind of just before a match started in, in whatever, like, you know, Overwatch or, or Virtua Fighter or anything, if there was like just a video of the person playing so you could just see all the other people, as much right. as that's probably a massive dodgy invasion of privacy. Yeah. I don't know, I think that, that, could, that, that would change it so much, I think, if you just saw just a little snapshot of everyone and where they are and what they're doing. And yeah. realizing you shouldn't be screaming insults at this fourteen-year-old kid, yeah, uh, but maybe not. Um, is there, have there has there ever been a game that you've played that has kind of consumed your life to the point where you're like, I need to uninstall this and get rid of it. This is taken over. Uh, yeah, I, I would guess. I imagine. I don't know if this, this is probably a popular answer, but I World of Warcraft. Um, I played that a lot. Um, I played the kind of beta for a long period of time and then I, I played the actual game for a really long period of time and, and it, it just got to the point where I was doing nothing else when I got home um, and I was not going out and I, and I felt quite unhealthy like physically unhealthy um, more so than mentally unhealthy but I, I, I'm sure there was an element of that as well um, so I, I, I just kind of I dropped it I'm really good uh, I think I'm quite like if I decide I don't want to do something, there's no kind of uh, whether it's any kind of addiction, uh, whether it's smoking or drinking or something else. I can I can just drop it. I don't particularly um, suffer any kind of withdrawal symptoms. So I, I what a show off. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I can't. It's it's one of those things I'm good at. I, I'm not good at many, so I, I shout about. No, no, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, but um, yeah, I I just decided one day to unsolve it, and that was it. And it was still really popular at the time, and uh, and and my entire kind of a lot of my social group were just playing it, and they were always talking about it. So it you know it meant listening to their conversations and not being part of it anymore. And um, but it, that was fine with me, you know. You know, I would just kind of shrug it off and say, yeah, whatever. I'm not I'm not coming <laughs> back. It's, that's that. Um, if if you are prone to such things, Ben, uh, what is your worst rage quit? <laughs> My worst rage quit was actually not even against the person. Uh, it was against an AI, <laughs> that, which is what makes it the worst rage quit. I, I, I was playing a game of Pro Evo um, 
I can't remember. Uh, it was it was in it was around 1998 1999 something like that um and i was playing in my room uh or like the thing that makes it the worst and particularly embarrassing was that I, I i was playing on the hardest level and it felt like the game was as often is with really kind of cheap terrible ai uh is just reading your inputs and uh and i and I was so infuriated at one point in this kind of match uh, that I got up into the PS2's grill. Like, I, I literally got in its face. Um, so it must have been later than that. Like, I, I, I pulled my controller out, and I pointed at my console, and I said, you're just jealous. Uh, <laughs> I, I screamed at it and, and just... and unplugged it and walked away <laughs> and, uh, so that's my that's my worst that's my worst and most embarrassing rage for it uh what is your chicken soup game if you have one that you go to for for comfort or to you know help you through difficult times right um so hmm, at the moment that would be no man's sky um, that's the kind of game I go to when I feel like relaxing and exploring and just kind of having some me time and just kind of re-energizing. Re um, previous, I kind of feel like I shouldn't say that though because I worked on it. So um, in terms of other games... You can say that, that's fine. Yeah, I would say Res probably so you like bought Red like every version you bought the 360 version and the ps4 yeah, version and it's the kind like... of game that i go back to regularly um and sometimes you know as a kind of I, I would definitely play res like once a year at least and uh and it's it's always it's kind of like that experience of sitting and and on a bank holiday and watching like an old bond movie yeah absolutely or, like or the goonies or something you know it's just kind of yeah, this 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 is good. Um, it's, it's, and it's, it's, not, a, it's not the kind of aesthetic where you don't feel like it's dated either. Oh, absolutely not. No, um, it, it, like it's it's really difficult. I think to to emphasize how amazing Res was in the first instance. Like you were talking about playing it earlier and being like almost shaken after it. Like I remember that so specifically. It was it was a genuine like holy shit. I didn't know games could do this. It was such a, yeah. a an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, so during like all of your your time, you know, working at Sega and, and then uh, subsequently Sony, like, what sort of games were you playing? Because you were kind of doing this uh, sort of um, role where you were kind of helping smaller teams and stuff. Like, were you still actively seeking out games? Were you still playing a lot of games? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I did, you know, as I became, you know more comfortable in my life. I, you know, I was, I was obviously paying and getting more games for myself to play in my own time, but also just professionally, um, I felt obliged to as well, you know, play as many games as I could. And are there uh, any kind of standouts? Um, yeah. Let me just try and think what my highlights have been. I mean, the, the, the team eco games have always been particularly special um i think for many people and and for me included uh so eco and shadow of the colossus um or about the last guardian 
The Last Guardian as well, um, but I was I, I was thinking back, so I wasn't. That's been so relatively recent. Um, yeah. I still haven't played that, which is weird. Because I mean, not similarly. Okay, like, good, I, I don't say anything then. Um, it, it, I still I need to play it a second time. Um, not because I have any kind of doubts about it, but because I, it's still sinking in, and um, it's an incredibly powerful game in the same way that the others are, but it's also very you know, very different than the other games in, in, in other ways. So, um, yeah, those, those games were really, uh, had it, had an impact on me, uh, during that period. Also, uh, journey by the, that game company, uh, is a game that I really, uh, think about a lot. Uh, in terms of what they what they achieved, what they did, and, and what they achieved, um, it's kind of similar to Res in the way that it's relatively simple, but it's just everything about it coalesces to make a really specific experience that you know other games generally you you, you can't necessarily get from other games. Yeah, yeah, and I've really been um, you know whether it's one that has a kind of traditional. I say traditional, but you know, a narrative in terms of, of dialogue or, or is silent as, as journey is essentially, um, aside from the kind of chimes that you can kind of communicate. Um, I've really got more and more interested in over the years. Um, it, you know, those types of, of journeys for want of a better word. So your kind of your, your journey or your gone home, um, and firewatch, uh, and I guess most recently, like Edith Finch, you know, those have been the kind of games that I, I felt drawn to. And maybe as a result of um, the kind of increase in, in social gaming and multiplayer gaming um, and online gaming. But having having those games that don't necessarily ignore those things. And obviously, Journey very much at its core is, is there's an online element to it. Yeah. Um, and a shared kind of experience element to it, but but games that really allow you to get lost in them. You know, I always like to think of these worlds as being ones that we're kind of invited to travel to as as kind of tourists. Absolutely, and, yeah. And putting yourself in that in that mindset. Uh, any game that kind of encourages that is one that I am always interested in. You know, in that way, it kind of shares a similarity with. Um, you know the best films and the, and the best books. Uh, not that uh, I don't think the games. Not that those should necessarily be the things by which games need to judge themselves. But, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, but my memories of it, in terms of throwing myself into reading the Lord of the Rings when I was a kid, or you know anything it's like that, getting lost in worlds, basically. Yeah, like, yeah, and that's that's what I really enjoy. As much as it's fun to play, and I and I'm really passionate about playing fighting games or uh, playing an online shooter or playing overwatch or, or whatever it's you know those are kind of they're always there and they are almost uh tools by which you stay in touch with people yeah <laughs> it's the way that i think of them at this point they're 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 things that they're incredibly well designed they've got great ux and ui and and mechanics and feedback loops and you know nice law and 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 great art design but really they're just you know it, when I was playing Destiny a lot a couple of years ago, um, I can't remember. I, I need to be careful that I don't uh, 
say this quote as though it were mine because I don't think it were mine. Oh, it was mine. I, I'm trying to think. You said I can't. It was either Rami or it was it was Mike Biffle. Um, but anyway, the, the, someone said, and this will sound really negative. Um, so maybe it wasn't those guys. <laughs> maybe it was me. But it's not actually intended neg- in a negative way. But I think Destiny and that kind of game is like the best uh, Skype. It's it's basically yeah. like a really beautiful looking Skype. It's you, it's a reason to get online and to create a chat group uh, or a party and uh, and just catch up with your friends while while kind of shooting aliens in a, in in a sci-fi themed space. So it's this kind of um, and that sounds really. Um, I think that sounds bad. That's probably come across. No, really no, bad. not at all. I don't. So. Uh, I guess to, yeah. To come back to the point, I, I just um, those I really enjoy those experiences, but more and more I yearn for those experiences that aren't that. Yeah, know, that are just ones that I can lose myself in. Um, not just because I have rose-tinted glasses and it reminds me of my childhood, but it just um, I just feel there's not many of them, and and you know, th- th- it's always something worth supporting and and um experiencing when you do have those kind of experiences so yeah that's those have been the kind of things that kind of over the years as online has kind of come into the fore um post kind of xbox yeah um 360 onwards really uh i've kind of really focused on or you know i've I've sought out those experiences absolutely and like I, I'm I'm still kind of because you kind of you, you seem to be a, a, a man who wears sort of many hats. I'm wondering, like, is there a, a specific game you can talk about in terms of like your role within it, like like how you how you played a part in that? You know, just to give an idea of what you would do. Um. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm trying to think what would be a good good example of that um so from a development perspective i so i would review uh the levels of crush on psp okay this is about one experience um and you know i would so i was really into level design and how space can convey mechanics and narrative and, and, and lore and, and how you can use space to, to create a journey for the player, uh, even one that they're not kind of consciously aware of. Yeah. And, uh, and that was really important in, in crush actually, in terms of the overall kind of length of the levels and the kind of use of the crush mechanic and how often it was used. Um, and you can, you know, there were many ways to approach it. You could approach it from a, a kind of really technical, um, data-driven way. So you could actually just look at how many crushes playtesters were taking or you were taking as you were kind of going through, or you could just do it based on feel, like where you felt the, the level was within the context of the, the game, um, working with the kind of lead designers. Um, and, and what I did was really... I, I remember spending a lot of time kind of studying all of the levels in isolation, but then also kind of as part of the bigger whole and then going through them and, uh, and, and essentially, 
redesigning or retweaking the kind of level date uh, layouts uh, and creating new level designs to kind of help to engender the kind of feeling that we we were trying to achieve with the game so so how what kind of uh, prompted you to to go freelance so to speak like how, how did you move away from from sony um so it was it was not an easy decision uh i really enjoyed working at playstation uh uh, working with Shahid and Lorenzo and Spencer, who are the other people in strategic content, uh, was an incredible experience. And um, it was really difficult to move away from it. Obviously, um, so Shahid left and went back to development, yep. uh, working as an indie de- developer. And, uh, you know, that wasn't in any way that hadn't informed me leaving. But I think we all felt, that we had done really well over the past five years and we'd kind of reached the point where, you know, it was, it was time. It was just really time to call it a day. Um, in the sense that, you know, we were there before PS4 launch. Um, we were there kind of during the, the kind of the, not halcyon days, but you know, we we really helped the platform. Oh, it totally not, changed, not, like the, and not just PS4, but but you know, Vita and, and PSVR. Oh, it's know, a total those... transformation. Like and, and yeah. like, uh, you can listen back, fans of the show, listen back to to Shahid's episode. Like the the mm. kind of the the internal change at Sony as well. Like in terms of how they viewed kind of smaller developers, and you know, yeah. now you see them essentially, you know, taken not center stage, but certainly there is no difference necessarily between triple a titles and kind of indie titles and stuff you just watch watch the e3 press conference and stuff and the way they're kind of just alongside each other like that's that's what we do now you know yeah it was uh, yeah and you know it's i worked on um i worked on no man's sky for like four years and uh you know from signing to to post release and uh there were many times well, I had to even in that case kind of pinch myself about this amazing thing that we were we were involved in and, and we were part of. But also there were many times where I sat back and I was like, this is, you know, this is not going to come along again. Um, and I really cherish those those years, both the good and the bad. You know, it was it was yeah. really good, but it, there were hard times as well. It was a really hard um, process, all of it uh, for everyone. And uh, but I really cherish those times with with Sean and uh, and the rest of the team at Hello, um, and you know I know there's not really going to be another one of those for me. Um, you know it's, it's it's hard enough to find those kind of games that really move that really kind of shape the pillars yeah. in a way that Man Sky did. Um, full stop. Um, but being involved in more than one is is really really difficult. So you know, the likelihood is that I'm not going to be involved in something like that again. And I think for me, I always think of, of things in a quite philosophical kind of high level sense. And yeah. uh, there was definitely an element of, well, you know, what I've been part of the PS4 launch. I've been part of a PSVR launch. I've been part of this kind of uh, thing that has helped, you know, so many developers in their conversations with publishers and platform holders um, and, and this whole kind of self-publishing um, element of the industry now, uh, you know, and I've worked on something like No Man's Sky. Um, 
what more can I do at Sony? Maybe I should just kind of challenge myself in a different way. Yeah. Um, you know, because, you know, if I stay there for another few years, there'll probably be another console launch. Um, you know, it'll be the same thing. The cycle will start again. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. It's really great to be involved in that cycle. It's always exciting. But, you know, I've done it twice now. Um, you know, I did it when we we're there during PS3 um, and then obviously with PS4 and, and, and the rest. And it just felt like it was time. And I think we all felt that way. So, um, so yeah, I decided to just call it a day. So why is it, like, what is your your job now? Is it kind of, do you see yourself as just, uh, like, I guess what I'm thinking is, like, how do you seek stuff out? You know, I'm sure there's, there's a certain element of, of um, Sony, I'm sure, where it was kind of like A&R, you know, you're looking for kind of yeah. small teams and new ideas. So now you're kind of, freelance essentially is it, is it the same process you're just seeking out interest in people and yeah and developers? I, yeah yeah so that I mean, must be quite a, exciting it is yeah it's really great to do that obviously i've built up a uh, a network of contacts and and you know i've worked with so many developers over the years um that a lot of people thankfully uh, reach out to me so i'm really lucky in that sense so in terms of um you know, having studios to work with or, and, and it's not just studios, I've got other clients. So I work with publishers and the platform holders as well. Um, but having people to work with that want to work with me, that know what I've done uh, is, is I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, and, and the work that I do, you know, really varies depending on, you know, the, the people that I'm working with. So, yeah. you know, I, I'll work with, uh, you know, I'll do workshops with small studios where I kind of help them kind of, hone in on, 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 on their concept. Um, I'll do work with other studios where I'll help them get investment or put them in touch with the right people to kind of help get their game made or partner with the right kind of publisher. So I almost act as a kind of, again, as a conduit or an agent in a sense. Um, then I'll work with some studios and kind of uh, give kind of design feedback. Um, I'm also kind of getting back into writing. So I'm kind of just uh, doing some, some writing for some other clients. So it's, it's, I'm really lucky. I'm, I've, I've, I've had a really good career, uh, in, in games working within the structure of studios and platform holders and publishers. So like working for myself just offers me a bit more freedom to, to continue doing those things that I like, but also Absolutely, yeah. explore my own, my own stuff. And uh, I'm just curious, like I'm, I'm struggling. I'm like, I may be kind of um, pushing the kind of record company A and R man analogy a bit too far, uh, but right. like you know, it, it, the equivalent of you know people getting in touch with you because they they know who you are and stuff. So you, the the equivalent of people sending you demos essentially, like here's this, can we mm. work together on something? But do you ever like I don't know, like sit and scroll through itch or something and be like, oh, hang on, this is great. I'm going to reach out to these people, you know, yeah. like in the same way of wandering into like a, a bar and seeing some band and be like, oh my god these guys are going to yeah. be huge. I mean, yeah, well, we did that when I was at Sony, but yeah, we to I totally do that now as well. Um, yeah. So it's, it's definitely, it's always, uh, it's, you know, the most fun <laughs> Spencer and I always used to really enjoy Spencer who used to work in strategic content. Uh, we used to really enjoy when we went to events um, to talk to people and, and kind of, talk to them as though we were just fat, particularly at like consumer events like PAX. Yeah, because people wouldn't necessarily know who you were. 
Right. So some people wouldn't know who we were, and uh, and you know, I I never carried well, I not never. I rarely carried business cards with me, um, and I definitely like now that I'm working for myself, I haven't made business cards out because I think it's a waste of paper, and people just find me on Twitter. It's kind of it's uh, you know it's different now, but it's I I never kind of gave people my business card developers my business card and um i would always just talk to them and then at the end kind of just surprise them and say hey i'm from sony and i think this is really cool let's talk so and just it was always a pleasure seeing people's kind of face oh that must be so exciting usually usually they'd kind of panic they'd be like oh my god but i said that thing about how i thought (laughs) like the vita was shit or something and it's just kind of like you know you'd just be like no it's fine like let's just talk about the game um it's always fun. I mean, it's one that, I, and I'm sure it's something that a lot of business development people and A and R people do. Um, but it never stops being fun to do that kind of thing. So doing it now is kind of good as well, like reaching out to people and saying, you know, what are you doing? It's a bit different now, uh, obviously, because I don't have, you know, I don't have the weight of that huge Sony battleship. Yeah. But you still me. have your your reputation, you know? Yeah. I'm, 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 this is, I may be reaching here for a, for a story that doesn't exist, but has there ever been a time when you've like <clears throat> gone to a, a trade show or played something on itch and been like, oh man, this is, this is really something. And then actually spoken to the people and been like, oh no, don't like, don't like these. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, no, that's never happened. <laughs> no, I, I, I'd be surprised if it did. Like most people, like, cause I speak to obviously a lot of developers on the show. Everyone seems to be really, cause it, cause it's really hard, you know, I think to get to that yeah. stage where you're you've got something to show you know you you you've put in the effort you, you're going to be gracious that anyone is interested at all you know yeah yeah i mean i've definitely seen things that seen that looked interesting and then when i played them they were they were fine but they weren't what i hoped or what i thought they they could be from okay. a from a sony perspective from a strategic perspective um back then so that definitely happened but there was never a case of or absolutely not, or, you know, because it's always, uh, you know, this is something I was telling someone recently, it was as much investing in the talent and the people than it was in investing in the projects. Um, so, you know, you, you did, we obviously, we invested in content, um, but sometimes we would take punts and invest in something um, in spite of the content uh, if we if we felt that there was, uh, a really fruitful relationship and, and a kind of long-term relationship, which often strategic relationships and content is, uh, you know, everyone looks at no man's sky and they're like, you know, even at Sony, even with Sony, they're like, how did you know, you know, how did you know, how did you find, how did you know that that was the thing to kind of uh, partner on? And, and how did you know that it, it, it was no man's sky? And, you know, everyone talks about no man's sky, no man's sky, no man's sky. It's like, it's not no man's sky. We know because we worked with Sean Murray and Hello Games on Joe Danger. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we knew them from before. And that's how we knew. That's how we were even in a position to know that he had been working on the prototype and, and making this thing. Um, Overlooked so, Joe Danger. It's a brilliant game. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really great game. And a lot of people overlooked it. That's exactly the point, you know, but, but we didn't. And we helped them with Joe Danger and, um, you know, and that's how we, we knew it wasn't just no man's sky in isolation because it's you know it's the talent it's the people behind it you know the the, the ideas have to come from somewhere absolutely and, and people and and those are the people that you invest in 
Uh, that's exciting. I, I feel like we've covered all sorts of good stuff, Ben. If there's anything that hasn't come up, though, that you wanted to mention, um, please do take that opportunity or let people know where they can find you online, all that stuff. Sure. Uh, I guess, I mean, online, I am at the Sake Diary, um, and that's pretty much the best way to get in touch with me um, for anything. So whether you're a developer or whether you just want to find out about working in games, although, as we've just discovered, my route into games was particularly strange yeah everyone's um, is that's fine everyone's is yeah uh that's it really i i've got nothing i i do have to give uh, a shout out uh and and, a, and um a few thank yous so um i just want to say if anyone uh hasn't already listened to or doesn't listen to idle thumbs you should listen to idle thumbs Oh, what you you you're shouting out another podcast? I know, but you can help each other. They they know checkpoints as well. I'm sure. I've had no, uh, yeah, no. Chris and Sean have both been on the show. Yeah. Um. So it's I, unbelievable, Ben. I I can't believe this. I feel I can, so slighted. No, 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 it's well, fine. It's oh, fine. Carry on. So well, actually, this is part of my history. This is something that we've not covered because it wasn't particularly relevant. Uh, but I'm one of the founders of Idle Funds. Oh, really? Yeah. So I I along with uh, James Spafford and Jake Rodkin uh, and Marek Bonstring and Chris Remo uh, started Idle Farms back in 2003. What? You've held this back for what? so long. Yeah. That's well, amazing. Really, not, not, our conversation didn't really go in that direction. So That's the original incarnation of, of Idle Thumbs, like the, 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 the blog, yeah. basically. Yeah, so that was that was something that we started and then failed at miserably because we were all kind of in the industry kind of progressing in our careers in the industry and um it was fun it kind of built up a really small <laughs> clicky kind of cult following um that then kind of blew up when chris and jake and nick um kind of reimagined it as a as a podcast and it, and and it went from there really uh so so are you still part of it because I, I guess the reason i wouldn't have ever thought that is because you know like spaff has been on the show a bunch of times yeah but... I'm, I'm on i'm on some of the pod i'm only on the ones where they they were either in recording one in the uk or we just happened to be at an event together and i'm just kind of in the background that you might hear me a few times um i think i was on I'm trying to remember what, the, the last one i was on was ages ago it was a few years ago. i was on one with ollie moss and uh and and jake and sean i think it was after or before the BAFTAs. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I do remember that. I don't remember you beyond. I apologize, Ben. No, it's fine. <laughs> I'm on it so uh, rarely. So yeah, I'm, but I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'll always be Idle Thumbs. Uh, so I guess yes, but in, in terms of actually being on the podcast, no, I don't. So do you get a, a cut of all that that cold blue money? <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't get that. I, I, uh, I, I just get to say that I was, I was part of the founding group but um but no it was it was it was a really really fun thing and that that whole group actually just went on to do so many incredible things so whether it's chris and jake sean nick uh steve gainer duncan fife um you know all of the guys uh just moved on to do incredible things and and you know i've I've not mentioned a bunch of them but we we had a really tight-knit group even though we were dispersed across the world um and uh yeah which is why i'm kind of it's it's uh why i'm giving them a shout out because they're, they're such incredible people but um it's weird actually like from, from 
doing this show and speaking to a lot of people, like the, it's like I, I find like speak to certain guests and I find that, that they used to be roommates with other guests and stuff. And it, it, the community is so small. But then, yeah. and, and part of me is like, oh God, it's all so cliquey. But it, it, it's that's kind of true of everything because if you're passionate and you love something you gravitate towards other people who are passionate and love the same thing you know it's just it's natural in the the same way you'd see like you know like the i'm sure i've even mentioned this on the show before but like the 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 troupe of actors in the 80s like the the snl groups and stuff and they they, they were all part of various improv groups in chicago and, and in canada and stuff and they all became the biggest stars in the world but that's just because they loved what they were doing, of course they're all going to know each other. Yeah, and they shared that love. I, I think we, I mean, Idle Thumbs was definitely, was the result of, um, you know, us wanting to have a forum where we could talk about games in the way that we actually spoke about games when we were having beers uh, and just kind of hanging out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having a really informal thing that reveled in the fact that it was all subjective and it was all very much about personal experiences and it was all about trying to understand other people's kind of perspectives, not in a kind of academic way, but in a just kind of, as you say, like around the table, you know, just chatting, like shooting shit, you know, while you're playing Destiny or whatever. Absolutely, you know, yeah. the equipment of just kind of, you know, this, but but what about this? Oh, no, I don't think that. That's nonsense. That's, that's a load of crap. Uh, but, well, you know, the, this. And then it's like, oh, actually, I never thought about that. I mean, and that, and that kind of dynamic. And um, Idle Farms was, was born out of that, was was very specifically born out of that. And um, even though we kind of, in the initial kind of website iteration, I think we kind of achieved it, but we did it so in, infrequently that uh, no one noticed. <laughs> but uh, but then in the podcast, obviously, those guys have really... I think that medium was the right medium for what we were trying to achieve rather yeah, than the yeah, web. Yeah. Uh, so it it kind of it, it rightfully uh, was a success. That was that was fun. Did you, did you enjoy the chat, Ben? Was that was that a good time? I did. Yeah. No, that was really good.
can win at that level, 